The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. A staffer in the U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein's San Francisco office was fired a few years back after being linked to Chinese spying in the Bay Area. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty bold headline, isn't it? You know, all this talk about Russian collusion, you know, they're back on this whole thing with Natalia Veselnaskaya, you know, the Russian lawyer who basically contacted Don Jr. and said, hey, we've got intel on the Clintons. And he goes, all right, let's set it up. Come on over to the tower. And she and that other guy get to, gets over to the Trump Tower with Paul Manafort, and which Paul Manafort worked for the Podestas, but, you know, that's a whole other thing. So... They meet, and it turns out she's peddling this McGinsky Act on adoptions and sanctions in Russia and on oligarchs. So there was nothing there. But everybody wants to point out the fact that Don Jr. met with these people, and maybe his dad knew. We've already talked about this a year ago or so. Check out the podcast archives. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever you, you get your podcast. You'll find it. We did this whole thing, and we showed that Wow, Don Jr. met with a Russian lawyer, the same Russian lawyer that worked for Fusion GPS, which is the organization that Hillary Clinton used to find opposition research on Donald Trump and then use that opposition research as credible evidence to gain a FISA warrant to spy using the bureaucracies of the actual government, you know, weaponizing them against a citizen running for public office. Same Russian lawyer that represented Spurbank, the Kremlin bank, that did the financing for the Uranium One deal, which profited the Clinton Foundation in the millions and also gave Bill Clinton a $500,000 speaking fee. They all have ties back to the Clintons. But yet, we all want to talk about the fact that he was meeting with a Russian lawyer and make that a big deal. We've been doing that online for the last couple of days. And I'm kind of done with it because if you don't understand the connections on the other side... And you don't realize that the Russians have been meddling in our elections since they became the Soviet Union. As soon as Vladimir Lenin conquered and turned, you know, the communist state turned on the light switch on the communism. That's when we had the Tumpkin villages where they brought over Hollywood elites and reporters and musicians and politicians and paraded them through these fake villages that made it look like their economy was on fire and they were just... This is the best form of government known to man. They've been meddling in our elections with the indoctrination of John Dewey, who was basically involved with creating the actual public school system and removing God from it and placing in obedience to the state, for lack of a better term. I mean, they've been meddling in our elections with Ted Kennedy talking to the Russians over you know, trying to interfere with Reagan's election. Meddling by the Russians has been going on for decades, and it's been going on for a lot of other countries. Heck, we meddled in Israeli elections. Look what Bill Clinton did in 96. Look what Obama did. So the influence of allies is one thing. The influence of 
those who aren't allies, such as China and Russia, in our elections is a big deal. But no one wants to really seem to focus on what China's been doing. And according to a Politico story on Silicon Valley espionage, Dianne Feinstein's staffer was suspected of providing political intelligence, but nothing classified. Let's point that out. Nothing classified. Everything was good. Everything beautiful. Nothing hurt. To his handlers, with one former intelligence official telling author Zach Dorfman that the suspected informant was run by officials based at the local Chinese consulate. A local source who knew of the incident confirmed to, uh, this is from the San Francisco Chronicle, that the FBI showed up at Feinstein's office in D.C. about five years ago to alert the then chair, chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Yes, soak that up. She is a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. She's also the one who's being a part of the members of, you know, this whole Russian collusion scam that's going on. She's one of those people. But she, <laughs> she found out that her driver was being investigated for possible Chinese spying. Diane was mortified, she said. <laughs> this is what a source said. They spoke on condition of anonymity. But, I mean, doesn't she always look mortified? She looks like a cross between Robin Williams and Pie Pie and, and some guy who was gorging down a cheese plate at the Golden Corral, all-you-can-eat buffet, and had to grunt it out, you know, a couple hours later. I mean, no surprise there, Diane was mortified. Besides driving her around when she was in California, the staffer also said she was, he was a gopher in the San Francisco office and a liaison to the Asian American community even attending Chinese consulate functions for the senator. According to the source, the intrigue started years earlier when the staffer took a trip to Asia to visit relatives and was befriended by someone who continued to stay in touch with him on subsequent vi visits. That someone was connected with the People's Republic of China's Ministry of State Security. Quote, he didn't even know what was happening, that he was being recruited, the source said. He just thought it was some friend. The FBI apparently concluded that the driver hadn't revealed anything of substance. They interviewed him, and Diane forced him to retire, and that was the end of it, the source said. None of her staff ever knew what was going on. They just kept quiet. But yeah, we're supposed to believe that 20 years, Diane Feinstein, or Feinstein, however you want to say it, tomato, tomato, she's just corrupt, that's all there is to it, that she had no knowledge of Chinese interference, you know, or Chinese uh, espionage. But she does have a financial history with China. Pretty big one at that. Feinstein's husband, Richard Bloom, expanded his private business interest in China in 1997. Bloom announced that he will donate future profits from his personal investments to his nonprofit foundation to help Tibetan refugees after he was interviewed by the New York Times about his China business. Now it goes way back in 1992. Feinstein entered the Senate. Bloom's interest in China amounted to one project worth less than 500000 according to her financial disclosure reports. But since then, financial activities in the country have increased. A Bloom investment firm paid $23 million for a stake in the Chinese government-owned steel enterprise, acquiring sizable interest in the leading producers of soybean milk and candy in, in China, and Blum's firm, Newbridge Capital Limited, received an important boost from a $10 million investment by the International Finance Corp. Now, this corporation is an arm of the World Bank. Experts said that the IFC backing typically confers legitimacy and can help attract other investors. 
Feinstein's role on U.S. policy towards China expanded. In January 1995, she became the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, giving her prominent platform for her efforts to support China's trade privileges. Since 1995, Feinstein has made three visits to confer with senior government officials in Beijing. Blum has accompanied each time at his own expense. Wow, he's got a little business deal going on the side there. Pretty good, uh, pretty good, you know, role for your wife to be in, huh? I mean, oh man, it's just amazing to me. Feinstein made three visits to confer with senior government officials in Beijing. Blum accompanied it each, you know, each time at his own expense and has attended many of her meetings with President Zeman, that was the former president back then. This is uh, going way, way back in the L.A. Times. The other top Chinese leaders, an unusual degree of access for a private businessman. On the trip in China in 1996, Blum accompanied Feinstein to a dinner with Zhang in the exclusive leaders' enclave. Quote, we had dinner in Zongnamhai in Mao Zedong's old residence in the room where he died. We were told that we were the first foreigners to see his bedroom and the swimming pool. It was a very historic moment to see some of these things, Feinstein told the Times reporter. Corruption is also big with these career politicians. CRBE, a giant real estate company owned by Blum, ended up costing the U.S. Postal Service millions a year in lease overpayments. But Blum stepped down, but he remained a director and shareholder. Federal investigators have detected that the Chinese government might attempt to seek favor with Feinstein. You don't say. Last year, she was one of six members of Congress who received warnings from the FBI that China might try to improperly influence them through illegal campaign contributions. Well, there is no evidence that Feinstein received received such contributions, but investigators are looking at the activities of the dual business government entities, including the China International Trade and Investment Corporation, CITIC, a $20 billion state-owned conglomerate that is the most influential financial enterprise in China, Blum's businesses come in contact either directly or indirectly with these entities. Newbridge Capital, the Blum uh, business venture, has two investments with partners originally from CITIC, said Peter Kwok, managing director of the Hong Kong Fund. Now, Mr. Kwok also serves as a consultant to a unit of China Ocean Shipping Company. That state-owned company won rights to build a $200 million cargo terminal at the closed Long Beach Naval Station. Blum won uh, permission from the Chinese in 1981 to lead the first attempt in modern times to climb the face, uh, the east face of Mount Everest. He describes himself as a close personal friend of the Dalai Lama and the exiled Tibetan religious leader, a friendship he notes would, would not win favor with the Beijing government. But what about her involvement with policy? She was responsible for the Desert Protection Act, which closed down America's most profitable mountain pass mine in the Mojave Desert in 2002. And while Blum was an exclusive importer of rare earth metals from China, the argument was that mining was causing environmental issues and that Chinese producers could provide these metals for hard drives and fluorescent light bulbs and magnets for electric vehicles um, at cheaper cost and more safer for the environment. But she was making money and her husband was making money all over it. So we're going to get into more of this on the other side of the break. Tweet at Rants Out Loud on Twitter or at Adrian Slade Show back in a second. This is Adrian Slade. 
Diane Feinstein, you know, the one that looks like Skeletor from He-Man, she enjoys Democrat privilege. And what is Democrat privilege? That's when you're shielded and protected for your corruption and even criminal actions simply because of which party you're affiliated with. And all this talk of Russian collusion, she's stunned to find out that her driver, which actually that was fake news as well, because it was actually understated in news media. He was much more of a right-hand man. And we're learning that his name is Russell Lowe, according to the due diligence of the Daily Caller News Foundation and Luke Rosiak. Thank God that they're on the scene. But he was a a Chinese spy, more so than just a driver. And he was very connected to Dianne Feinstein as as a go-to advisor and staffer. And even though she and her husband have been banking off of doing business with communist China, she's going to act like she didn't know that that was even the case. I mean, you got to wonder, is this the motivation behind even the Iran deal? You know, if you think about every uh, country that we've made these deals with, North Korea, China, it's always a market that is untouched by Americans. And if we opened up that market, those who want to make gains off of what kind of relationships would arise, they're the ones pushing the the legislation, the sanctions, all that. They're, they're pushing the political power to make things happen so they get the financial gain on the outset. But back in 1996, Dianne Feinstein actually said, I sometimes say that in my last life, maybe I was Chinese. <laughs> yeah, from the LA Times in 1996, over the years, Senator Dianne Feinstein has come to view herself as a China hand. And now, amid mounting tensions between China, Taiwan, and the California Democrat, increasing her assertion by throwing herself behind the scenes as a would-be peacemaker, it's become troubling. In the process, Feinstein is playing a rare set of personal relationships that she has nurtured with the three different countries now at the center of the standoff. The presidents of China, Taiwan, and the United States. To each, Feinstein has been dispensing strong and equivocal advice. I sometimes say that in my last life, maybe I, would, I was Chinese. Maybe in your first life. Maybe in the life you're living now because you're banking off of China. But the, the actual Asian Times re- reported and said, no U.S. politician is believed to enjoy ties to China's previous and present day leadership as close as Feinstein. During 30 years of frequent visits to Beijing, Feinstein developed relationships, friendships with Chinese officials as high ranking as former president Zhang Zemin, former president, uh, premier Zhu Rangjing, and Kongqing Party Secretary Bao Zilai, and now arguably a rising political star in the country. Controversially, on most of her trips to China, Feinstein has been accompanied by her investment banker husband, Richard Blum, who Feinstein has been married to since 1980. Blum has been reported by U.S. media as having extensive business interest in China, which we laid out in the first opening segment. You can go back to the podcast and listen to it or check us out on the replay. Feinstein is often described as one of the most powerful women in U.S. politics. Most outrageously, apart from this, the strong proponent of closer U.S.-China ties held a speech on the 21st anniversary of the 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen Square. Feinstein commented on the bloody protest in a way that strongly implies that she plays the she 
plays the role of being Beijing's mouthpiece, believe it or not. Listen to this. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal published in June of 2010, the senator sought to explain the killing of hundreds of reportedly unarmed demonstrators by the People's Liberation Army into relations in a way that put the Chinese Communist Party leaders into the area of favorable light. Quote, it just so happens I was here after that and talked to Zhang Zemin and learned that at the time China had no local police. It was just the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and no local police that had crowd control. So hence the tanks. Oh, okay. They just didn't have a local police force. So send in the military to, sh- to shut down the protest. But, you know, we can keep things nonpartisan here because it isn't just Dianne Feinstein and some other Democrat notable uh, figures that we're going to talk about in a minute. Mitch McConnell. Oh, yeah. Cocaine Mitch. <laughs> yeah, he has some dealings with uh, China. And Blankenship even brought this up, that crazy guy who said he's hanging out with the Chinamen. Well, <laughs> Mitch McConnell went from being Senate leader, weary of China, to his biggest booster, while Elaine Chow, his wife, parlayed more Chinese cash into turning the Heritage Foundation's policy towards China and securing a cabinet post with George W. Bush's administration back in the 2000s. McConnell and Chow had an average net worth of $3.1 million in 2004. Ten years later, while working only in government, that figure rose to $9.2 million and then to $36.5 million. Peter Schweitzer has a book that covers a lot of this. I recommend go picking it up. McConnell and Elaine Chow's political maneuverings to make tens of millions of dollars were made possible by their numerous ties with the communist Chinese government and its business dealings. Remember, this is the same Chinese government that we talked about on a a previous episode. You can go back and check out the podcast. And we covered how they won't allow Bibles to enter the country they're destroying mega churches. They're doing the social uh, media credit scores. They've actually tore down a few churches recently and told some churches to take pictures of Jesus down and put pictures up of Jing Jinping, you know, the current president. So, yeah, that, that China is what we're talking about here. Schweitzer digs up and lays out hard evidence that McConnell, as well as former President Joe Biden, who we're going to cover in just a few, have taken advantage of their positions in Washington to strike deals yielding hundreds and millions of dollars in profits for their families and Chinese political and business leaders, some at the expense of U.S. security. Schweitzer argues that China has worked to gain leverage over powerful American politicians by targeting their families with investment opportunities and business deals, providing hundreds of millions of dollars in businesses uh, to companies run by families of the Messrs. Biden and McConnell. As Schweitzer tells it, the Chow family fortune derives from the foremost group, a shipping company uh, that Chinese natives James Chow, a classmate of former Chinese President Zhang Zemin at Tong University, founded in New York in 1964. The New York uh, Post explained, Chow remains foremost chairman today, and his daughter, Angela and Christine, are the company's deputy chairwoman and general counsel, respectively. Elaine Chow worked there since the 1970s and has been quoted as saying, shipping is our family tradition. Also making money off the Chicoms. Though it's China State Building Company, uh, CSSC, which has transacted large volumes of business with Foremost, the Chinese government is responsible for handling 
in handing the private Chinese company most of its success, especially since its focus is placed on strengthening the Chinese military. It should also be noted that both James and Elaine uh, Angela Chow have sat on the board of an SEC or CSSC offshoot. CSSC is a state-owned defense conglomerate at the heart of the Chinese government's military-industrial complex, Schweitzer explained. While the company foremost is an American company, their ships have been constructed by Chinese government shipyards and some of their construction financed by the Chinese government. However, it was pointed out the crews of the company foremost are predominantly Chinese, and even though the U.S. Transportation Secretary and company founder's daughter, Elaine Chow, said differently. More than a quarter century, McConnell and Chow have been exploiting their ties with China to their financial advantage. It's worth noting how both McConnell and Chow, with their roles as high-ranking U.S. officials, have personally interacted with and then gone considerably soft on China since their 1993 wedding. The New York Post's Larry Getlin indicated, when Senator McConnell, who took hardline positions against China prior to his marriage, met with high-ranking officials from China in 1994, it was not in his capacity as senator, but via a personal invitation from the CSSC arranged by James Chow. McConnell met with Zimin, then the country's president and vice premier, Ling Lang. After his meeting, McConnell would increasingly avoid public criticism of China. More meetings like that would follow in the years to come. And that's just McConnell. Wait till we get into Joe Biden and John Kerry's siblings or stepsons. Pretty interesting. We'll get into that on the other side of the break. Don't forget, you can always tweet at the show at Rants Out Loud or the official show Twitter page at Adrian Slade Show. Stick with me. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. Welcome back. So we're talking about Chinese collusion. Use your collusion one and two. You know, we're talking about Russian collusion, but no one's talking about Chinese collusion and how elected officials such as Dianne Feinstein and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Senator Cocaine Mitch McConnell and uh, even Hunter Biden. He's the uh, he's the son of Joe Biden, obviously, and former Secretary of State John Kerry's stepson, Christopher Hines. Well, they have been colluding with China as well. In fact, they form an investment firm, Rosemont Seneca. The firm facilitated a deal to the tune of $1 billion with our nation's biggest threat, China. Yep, <laughs> they're making bank off the Chinese. From the New York Times, they created an international private equity firm. It was anchored by the Heinz family's alternative investment fund, Rosemont Capital. The new firm would be populated by political loyalists and positioned to strike profitable deals overseas with foreign governments and officials with whom the U.S. government was negotiating. Rather than set up shop in New York City, the financial capital of the world, Rosemont Seneca leased space in Washington, D.C. They occupied an all-brick building on Wisconsin Avenue, the main thoroughfare of exclusive Georgetown. Their offices would be less than a mile from John and Teresa Carey's 23-room Georgetown mansion. Hmm, he's all for the little guy, isn't he? 23 bedrooms, pretty amazing. Um, and just two miles away from both Joe Biden's office in the White House and his residence at the Naval Observatory. <laughs> so, in short, the Chinese government was literally funding a business that it co-owned. 
along with the sons of two of America's most powerful decision makers, the vice president of the United States and the secretary of state. So over the next seven years, as both Joe Biden and John Kerry negotiated uh, a series of executive deals, often with those with the same Chinese government, a troubling pattern emerged from the research showing how profitable deals were struck with foreign governments on the heels of crucial diplomatic missions carried out by their powerful fathers. One of those foreign entities gained favorable policy actions from the United States government, just as the Suns were securing favorable financial deals from those same entities. Funny how that works. You or I couldn't do that. Nowhere is there more true uh, than in their commercial dealings with the Chinese government-backed enterprises. Rosemont Seneca joined forces in doing business in China with another politically connected consultancy called the Thornton Group. That's a Massachusetts-based firm headed by James Bulger. Now, he's interesting because he's the nephew of the notorious mob hitman James Whitey Bulger. Now, Whitey was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, part of the South Boston Mafia. And he was under indicted. Uh, he was under indictment for 19 murders, and then he disappeared. Later, he was arrested, tried, and convicted. Also, according to the Thornton Group, the three Americans met with the largest and most powerful government leaders in China. And even though Rosemont was both new and small, they were able to make this happen. But the timing of this was very curious. It occurred just hours before Hunter Biden's father, the vice president, met with Chinese President Hu in Washington as part of the Nuclear Security Summit. Wow, look at the timing. For a small firm like Rosemont Seneca with no track record, it was an impressive level of success to access to China's largest financial players. And it was just two weeks after Joe Biden had opened up the U.S.-China strategic dialogue with Chinese officials in Washington. On one of the first days in December 2013, Hunter Biden was jet-setting across the Pacific Ocean aboard Air Force Two with his father and his and his daughter Finnegan. Vice President was heading to Asia on an extended trip. The American delegation was visiting Japan, China, and South Korea, but it was the visit to China that had the most potential to generate conflict and controversy. The Obama administration had instituted the Asia pivot in its international strategy, shifting attention away from Europe towards Asia, where Chinese was flexing its muscles. For Hunter Biden, the trip coincided with a major deal that Rosemont Seneca was striking with the state-owned Bank of China. From his perspective, the timing couldn't have been better. Vice President Biden, Hunter Biden, and Finnegan arrived to a red carpet and a delegation of Chinese officials. Greeted by Chinese children carrying flowers, the delegation was then whisked to a meeting with uh, Vice President Li Yangchango and talks with President Xi Jinping. Hunter and Finnegan Biden both joined the president with, uh, for tea with U.S. Ambassador Gary Locke at the Lu Jingyong Tea House in Beijing, where Hunter Biden spent the rest of, the, of his time on the trip. And that remains largely a mystery as to what he actually did. There were actually more reports of daughter Finnegan's activities than Hunter Biden's. And what was not reported was the deal that Hunter was securing. Rosemont Seneca Partners had been negotiating an exclusive deal with Chinese officials, which they had signed approximately 10 days after Hunter visit, uh, visited China with his father. The most powerful financial institution in China, the government's Bank of China, was setting up a joint venture with Rosemont Seneca. 
the Bank of China is government-owned, which means that its role as a bank blurs into its role as a tool of the government. The, China, the Bank of China provides capital for China's economic statecraft, as a scholar James Riley once put. Bank loans and deals often occur within the context of the role of government. Rosemont Seneca and the Bank of China created $1 billion investment fund called Bohai Harvest RST, a name that reflected everyone who was involved. Bohai, or Bo and H-A-I, Hai, the innermost uh, gulf of the Yellow Sea was referenced to the Chinese stake in the company, and RS referred to Rosemont Seneca, and the T was for Thornton. So in short, the Chinese government was literally funding business that it co-owned along with his sons of the two most powerful decision makers in the United States. How about President Clinton? We know about China Gate. We know about how he sold us out to the Chicoms just so he can run for re-election earlier than any competitor. I mean, it's not like he needed money to overcome Bob Dole. But, you know, this came to light a little bit again when a Chinese-American businessman at the center of the Clinton campaign finance scandal secretly filmed a tell-all video and dumped it out to the UK Daily Mail because he feared being murdered. Johnny Chung spilled details how he illegally funneled money from the Chinese officials to Bill Clinton's 1996 re-election bid. The Chinese-American Clinton fundraiser recorded an elaborate videotape testimony while in hiding in 2000. He smuggled it to friends and family with instructions to release it in the event of an untimely death or an assassination. Chung is believed to still be in China alive. Johnny Chung's fundraising made him someone the Clintons were keen to be seen with and... They loved it. They, they, I mean, the businessmen, were once they were caught up in scandal, he began to fear for his life. But Johnny Chung recorded his testimony, and the Daily Mail obtained this copy of this video. He's, the Chinagate scandal also saw Ning Lap Singh, a Maku billionaire, tied to the Chinese government, accused of pouring $1 million into Clinton's 1996 re-election bid. In that footage, Chung described how he feared for his life after he publicly admitted to funneling money from Chinese officials to President Bill Clinton's 1996 re-election campaign. He also claimed that Democrats pressured him to stay silent about his dealings with the Clintons and said the FBI tried to enlist him in a sting operation against the top Chinese general at a Los Angeles airport. The video grew out of controversy in the mid-90s when evidence surfaced that Chinese officials were pouring hundreds of thousands into President Bill Clinton's re-election campaign through American straw donors. Chung, one of the main players in the Chinagate scandal, was accused of giving over 300000 to the Na uh, Democrat National Committee on behalf of the head of Chinese military intelligence agency during Clinton's re-election bid. He operated with the Department of Justice during an investigation and was sentenced to five years of probation for campaign finance violations, bank fraud, and tax evasion in 1998. Chung was persuaded to film the insurance video by former government officials who visited him while he was in hiding and told him that his odds of survival actually increased by going public. Chung received a friendly visit from a retired government official, friendly with the FBI, who perhaps felt guilty about the treatment Chung had been given after seeing and agreeing to have him come forth to tell the truth. And so, with assistance from the former government official, Johnny Chung produced an elaborate videotape testimony that was secreted to friends and family to be forwarded to the media in case of his death. So he was kind of worried, and he was actually worried about being killed because of what happened to Ron Brown. Does anyone remember what happened to Ron Brown? <laughs> yeah, um, Ron Brown was the Secretary of Commerce 
who was found dead in an airplane crash. And, uh, you know, he actually was thought to be coming forward with information on Chinese, uh, you know, illegal Chinese activities in American politics. So, I mean, could that have been one of the reasons why he was freaking out? I mean, during the mid-90s, Chung met regularly in Washington with key Clinton officials and other Democrats. None seemed suspicious of how relatively unknown a small businessman was and how he was able to cut such large donation checks. In total, he visited the White House 57 times to sign uh, in a two-year time span. Eight of the meetings were off the books. Most of the meetings were with Hillary Clinton and her staff. During these, uh, one of these trips, Chung personally handed a $50,000 check to Hillary Clinton's chief of staff, Maggie Williams. Chung even helped arrange for Bill Clinton to meet with the source of the money, a top Chinese military official. Of course, we know now a lot of our military weapons intelligence was given to China, missile defense, all that information. But, you know, never mind about that. You know, that was the thing. Ron Brown, going back to him, he was the point person for Clinton's trade policy, and he was killed in a plane crash in Croatia in 1996. It was speculated that he was going to go public with illegal Chinese campaign contributions before his death. Now, here's the funny thing. Napling Singh was photographed meeting Bill Clinton in Georgetown in 1995. He avoided prosecution over claims he gave illegal campaign donations he was arrested in 2015 with a suitcase of cash as he entered the United States and is now under house arrest for attempting to bring a United Nations official the money. Now, this United Nations official allegedly accepted the bribes. John Ash, 61, he was unexpectedly killed by a barbed wire while lifting weights last summer. <laughs> so the Clinton death toll rises. Johnny Chung, he wants to avoid it by filming this video, and we see the donations and the involvement with either the vice president's son, the secretary of state's, uh, you know, stepson. You've got Diane Feinstein and her husband. You got Mitch McConnell and his wife. And everybody is involved with making a ton of money off of China. And apparently a lot of Hillary Clinton's emails were being mirrored and sent to possibly China. And so this whole Russian collusion scandal is a bit of ridiculous hypocrisy if you place it up against to what the establishment on both sides of the aisle are doing with the Chinese government. I mean, I would go so far to say that this entire smokescreen is to cover up all these things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Get the attention on Trump, but take the attention away from all these people making out like bandits on the Chinese government. Back in a second. This is Adrian Slade. Welcome back. I think one of the things we have to really also keep an eye on is just Chinese influence throughout the globe. I mean, Christopher Wray, director of the FBI, basically said China rather than Russia is the most significant long term threat to the United States. During an interview with NBC's Lester Holt, Wray said that the FBI has economic espionage investigations in all 50 states that trace back to Chinese activity. Quote, it covers everything from corn seeds in Iowa to wind turbines in Massachusetts and everything in between. Most of the forum focused on the FBI's investigation of Russia's meddling in the 2016 presidential election and in other arenas. But Ray acknowledged that the seriousness of the Russian threat, uh, as big as it is, says that the U.S. has to deal with it very aggressively 
quote, there are certainly other countries that have their own ways of influencing our public opinion, our politicians and our business community. But there's no way that Russia has been by far the most aggressive actor in the space we've been talking about right now, he said of Russia's campaign related efforts. Now, China is trying to position itself as the sole dominant superpower, Christopher Ray said. They're trying to replace the United States in that role. He said, quote, I think China, from a counterintelligence perspective, remains in many ways. It represents the broadest, most challenging, most significant threat we face as a country. He said Chinese espionage activities are a whole state effort that involves econo uh, economic espionage as well as traditional espionage and, quote, human sources as well as cyber means. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you find out what's going on throughout the world. From the New York Times, the Chinese government systematically dismantled CIA spying operations in the country back in 2010, killing or imprisoning more than a dozen sources over two years and crippling intelligence gathering from years later. Current and former American officials describe the intelligence breach as one of the worst in decades. It set off a scramble in the Washington's intelligence and law enforcement agencies to contain the fallout, but investigators were bitterly divided over the cause. Some were convinced that a mole within the CIA had betrayed the United States. Others believed that China had hacked the covert systems of the CIA and used uh, to communicate with foreign sources, but there's no disagreement about the damage from the final weeks of 2010 to the end of 2012. According to former American officials, the Chinese killed at least a dozen of the CIA sources, and according to three officials, one was shot in front of his colleagues in a courtyard government building as a message to others that still might be working for the CIA. Others were put in jail. <laughs> it's amazing when you get into how we basically allowed them to find out who our CIA agents were and take them out. Was that done on purpose? I don't know. But now their influence, China's influence is reaching throughout the, goal, uh, the globe. And what we have to realize is their goal is to establish their tentacles throughout the world. And one way that they allow businesses to establish their tentacles in their land is they do this kind of state-run faux capitalism where they take stake ownership of and shareholder ownership of businesses to allow them an ease of barrier into entry to do business with their new market, you know, their market of people, because they got a ton of people out there and businesses around the world are always looking for new markets to move into. But you have to give up some of your control of your business to the Chinese government. So it looks like it's capitalism, but it isn't. And so what's going on throughout the world? China is branching out into other areas. In fact, New Zealand is one place that they're actually branching out in. And why is this important? Well, they're one of the members of the Five Eyes, the partnership with the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia. You know, they're, they're the ones that kind of get together and and watch each other's back with far, as far as counterterrorism goes, as far as espionage goes. And the Business Insider reported this, said countries around Asia and their partners are increasingly concerned about China's growing influence. Members of the Five Eyes Partnership are concerned Beijing's growing influence in New Zealand. The report, which is based on presentations at an academic conference but does not represent the security service's formal views, says New Zealand faces a concerted foreign interference campaign from China, which wants to access strategic information and resources and build support for its objectives by co-opting political and economic elites in New Zealand. 
These efforts have taken the form of business opportunities, investments, scholarships, vanity projects to win over local business elites, attempts to bring local Chinese communities under Beijing's sway and influencing voting habits, and they use the acquisition and partnerships with New Zealand companies and universities to establish a local presence, expand influence, gain access to military technology, commercial secrets, and other valuable information. Chinese uh, Communist Party leadership regards New Zealand as an exemplar of the kind of relationship it wants with other companies. And it says that activities in New Zealand have now reached critical levels. Some of these efforts are direct threats to national security, according to the report, while others pose long-term risk to a free society, including limiting the rights for the ethnic Chinese community, quashing public debate about China, and corrupting the political system. Now, China is also digging its tentacles into Africa. And this is from Forbes magazine. In June 2017, a McKinsey and Company report established and estimated that there was more than 10,000 Chinese-owned firms operating in Africa. What are the Chicoms doing in, in Africa? What are these corporations doing throughout Africa? Well, it's a highly controversial issue. The reason Chinese corporations are in Africa... It's a simple one, actually. It's basically to exploit the people and take their resources. They say that this is the same thing European colonists did during the mercantile times, but this one is worse. The Chinese corporations are trying to turn Africa into another Chinese continent. They're squeezing Africa for everything it's worth. This is the view several African politicians have. The Zambian uh, politician Michael Sata was one of them, At least he was before being elected president of Zambia in 2011. He wrote a paper presented to Harvard University in 2007 that said European colonial exploration and exploitation in comparison to Chinese exploitation appears benign because even though the commercial exploitation was just as bad, the uh, colonial agents also invested in social and economic infrastructure issues and services. Now, the Chinese investment, on the other hand, is focused on taking out as much from Africa as they can without any regard to the welfare of the local people. And they're looking at precious metals. They're looking at all types of resources that they can mine from Africa. And they're doing this to fortify themselves, but they're not reinvesting anything into Africa. And which is really amazing when you start to see the political climate in Africa, especially in South Africa, where... They basically have gone after the white farming community. They won't let them leave the country. They're attacking and killing white farmers. And it's almost like a genocide from the former apartheid uh, years. It's, it's insane over there. But China is the big threat, whether it's militarily, you know, with the fake islands, the military islands that they developed in their surrounding ports and, and, and water accesses, whether it's how they're buying off our politicians I mean, that's something that should be frightening as it is. Google has already succumbed to, you know, to China. And so is I, uh, Apple, from what I understand. So when the tech companies start pounding on their door and they have to give up their ownership, then we have to worry about what is going to happen with Chinese influence across the globe, especially through information that we receive, you know, through Internet tech companies, you know, 
Xi Jinping, however you say his name, he is considered a soft Maoist. He is a communist. And we talked about how they're destroying churches. They're not allowing Bibles to come into the country. They're basically wrecking megachurches, causing the church community to go underground, replacing pictures of Jesus with, uh, with Xi Jinping's photos. You know, they're doing social credit scores on its people to inject some sort of faux morality. China's the bigger threat than Russia. Russia just wants to disrupt our elections and cause chaos in our country. And Russia wants to team up with the Middle East and, and you know, assert their power. But Russia, as much as what they can do, their form of communism and, uh, you know, totalitarianism is less frightening than the soft totalitarianism and communism of China, which is buried in a fake capitalism, fake success, and then in a giant fog of, of pollution. It's something we need to really be concerned about in the future of our country, especially with the assets that they hold, the, the American assets and the amount of money that they have invested in America as it is. You know, that should be frightening. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to us every weekend on Mojo 5 the new platform for libertarian, conservatarian, conservative talk on Dash Radio as well. Also, check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Spotify, and various other podcast platforms. Get the free Roku channel in your streaming store. Also, you can donate patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show, $2 a month or whichever amount you wish. You can also check out the blog, adriansladeshow.com. We'll see you guys next time.